and welcome to a special bonus episode of Cinemaholics. I'm your usual co-host, Will Ashton, and join me, uh, I'd like to say as per usual, since you've been on uh, quite a few episodes of late, is my good buddy, Corey Woodruff. Hey, Corey. Hey, what's up, man? Not much. I'm ready to talk about what we're going to be talking about in this bonus episode. Now, I was trying to explain it to you earlier. This isn't the main episode of Cinemaholics. It's just like a little bonus fun thing we're doing, but we might dive into more stuff if we have the freedom or free time to do it. But I feel like, as you were saying earlier, the main movie we're going to be talking about this week uh, might uh, warrant an episode, maybe even two episodes worth of conversation because, boy, oh boy, does this movie uh, kind of <laughs> leave a lot to say. And that movie is uh, Under the Silver Lake, which is the movie from, I'm hoping I'm getting the name right. Is it David Robert Mitchell or Robert David Mitchell? David Robert. David Robert, okay. People probably know him best from uh, It Follows, which was in 2014, or 15, I think, right? 2015 is when oh, it came out yeah. in the United States. I think 2014 is when it did the festival runs. Uh, and then he had a film prior to that called The Myth of the American Sleepover. Now, you've seen It Follows, right, Corey? Yes. Actually, no. I've never oh, you, seen it. Oh, really? So you haven't yeah, seen it? And did you see... I know a lot about it. Okay. And did you see The Myth of the American Sleepover? No, this is my very first David Robert Mitchell film. Oh, okay. That's a very, very interesting way to in- get introduced into his uh, filmography, and I'll explain a little bit more uh, why I feel that way. But um, this film, it's one that's been on my radar for quite some time. It's an A24 release, and it stars Andrew Garfield. Uh, I never know how to pronounce her name. Riley Kyla? Or, you know how to pronounce her last name? I think it's Keo. Keo? Um, yeah. Topher Grace, uh, Jimmy Simmons or Simpson, uh, a bunch of other people. I don't know if I should give away who else is in the film, but, uh, yeah, this is a follow-up film in the sense that once this director kind of got some major indie clout with, um, it follows it's, this is the kind of typical, like I have the freedom to kind of do whatever I want movie where I kind of get my blank check film is often the referred to name for this type of film where he gets pretty expansive, pretty uh, ambitious. And it seems like based on the reviews that I've seen, the res- the response to the film is pretty much polarized people. It's either you love it or you hate it, or you don't really know what to make of it. And I think it's one of those type of films that at least going into it before I even saw it, it's one of those films that easily kind of draws my attention because I don't know about you, Corey, but Whenever I hear a lot about, or when we cover a lot of films on the podcast or reviewing in general, like you kind of know most of the time how you probably are going to feel about something. For instance, like you have a general idea that, like, I think we both knew kind of we we're going to like Avengers: Infinity War. The question is more like how much. Oh yeah, uh, like it. It wasn't really like there wasn't a doubt that I think either of us were going to dislike it. Would become a big surprise if we disliked it. But this film. Going into it, I really didn't know what my response was going to be to this film, just because a lot of people I respect really liked it, and a lot of people I respect did not like it at all. But uh, I want to hear first from you, Corey. What was your kind of introduction to this film, and uh, what was your kind of mindset going in before you saw it? Well, right now, my favorite working actor is Andrew Garfield. Oh, yeah? um, I really like of everybody working right now, like... I don't know if there's anyone that's picking more interesting projects or is bringing more interesting things to roles and it's really spacing out what he does just enough to where it's like an event when he stars in something. Like, you know, if I'm looking at his like recent filmography, like he doesn't do a ton of stuff. Um, Like movie wise, he's only made one, two, three, four, five movies in the last five years. 99 Homes, Hacksaw Ridge, Silence, breathe and under the silver lake i didn't see breathe although i'm curious to see that yeah i didn't see it either uh it didn't really have a huge theatrical release here but like if you're looking at a post spider-man world he's done like four major performances uh to go with uh and i don't consider breathe a major performance but 99 homes hacksaw ridge and silence are all like pretty big you know roles i think mm-hmm. obviously he got an oscar nomination for uh I think he got one for Hacksaw Ridge, um, if I'm not mistaken. I think so, yeah. He, um, yep, got one for actually, uh, yeah, he did for yep, actually. <laughs> I, uh, I forget that was like a big Oscar movie. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was very, um, very kind of strange and surreal, given that it was a Mel, uh, Mel Gibson production, and like everyone was just like at the Oscars, at least everyone was like, oh yeah, this is amazing. Gotta give yeah. this all the awards, even though like I don't even think. 
I mean, I thought it was whatever. It was okay, but I mean, it Still wasn't. Really. It wasn't really like the best film. And I mean, considering no. all that was kind of uh, going around the controversy of who directed it, it was just kind of surprising that that film got the response that it did from the Academy. But I will say, I, I thought he did a really good job in that, and I agree with you. I don't know if I'm quite as high on. Andrew Garfield, as you are, but I do think kind of similar to Robin Pattinson when he left uh, Twilight or Twilight Saga, he is kind of proven to stay out of like the blockbuster scene pretty much entirely and just chosen to work with kind of prominent or noteworthy filmmakers, just kind of diverse himself out and chosen to expand and kind of challenge and uh, prove himself as an actor in many different respects. And that's really interesting to me about him. Yeah. He's hosted SNL twice. Is that a surprise in the sense that you think he should be hosting it more or less? Or just, I'm surprised he's like hosted it like more than once. Cause I guess he did it once for Social Network and then once for uh, The Amazing Spider Man 2. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, he's really funny. I was going to say, yeah, I think if anything, I, I don't know uh, what I can say about his performance without diving into spoilers, but I do think that it does kind of prove that he does have kind of a talent for comedy and that he has more physicality than I think we've really gotten to see for him beyond say silence. And all. I mean, I do think the Spider-Man movies have proven the physicality with how he kind of can maneuver his body in certain ways. But in a comedic sense, I think this is the first time I've really seen him prove himself in that way, which yeah. is pretty interesting. So yeah. Um, now we kind of got that out of the way. I, I want to hear, so you saw this, um, I think it, late 2018 if i'm not mistaken right Mm -hmm. december yeah Yeah. and um it seems like you kind of went in generally cold especially since you weren't uh familiar with the filmmaker going yeah i knew the genre and i'd seen that trade i think the trailer was great and it was just so weird and enticing and it had that inherent vice vibe to it like you know long goodbye one of those kind of like you know loopy noirs where you really kind of have the kind of affable stonery dude who's kind of leading the charge and you know it's like you have all the weird subplots and side characters and kind of little general like kind of you know hippy dippy creepiness that's going on under the undertext it's usually set in like la it's like you know it's like that vi- it's like a violent film song or something which i think is what they use over the trailer <laughs> you know it's just definitely got that vibe to it and i was like i'm really into this and i love andrew garfield so i was just like this is right up my alley because I loved Inherent Vice. Obviously, Long Goodbye is a classic. So it's like, yeah, there's a lot going on here that I'm like in for. And then when I sat down and watched it, I was kind of like, yeah, that's a pretty much what I kind of thought it might be. But it had some things about it that I didn't expect. Had some things about it that I really liked. Had some things that I wasn't super, super crazy about. But, you know, I think all in all, it was just like, pretty much what you made what i probably should have expected (laughs) yeah i mean i should note that i just saw this movie i think less than two hours ago so i'm still kind of letting it soak in um, oh gosh no pun intended (laughs) i guess with the like yeah um yeah but i think i'm generally with you on this one yeah i i I don't quite know exactly how much i like the film because i think that's one of the main reasons i wanted to have this conversation with you is because I I'm still kind of processing the film. I, I'm trying to figure out exactly where I stand on it, but I do recognize that uh, this is really an, a filmmaker who has like a strong visual sense. I mean, certainly his work with the cinematographer, cinematographer, yeah. um, what's the guy's name? Uh, Michael Kialakis. Yeah. Who the cinematography, I think it is, if not the best thing about certainly in the top three, because this is a gorgeous, oh, yeah. Looking movie. And Locus right now is like one of the emerging talents in that field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think to me that's one of the greatest shames about the release for the film. We should note, if you don't know, that the film was initially supposed to come out, uh, I believe, this time last summer. Yeah, uh, maybe a little later than that. Uh, but I know that. What was that? I remember we were supposed to get it in town um, for like July the 1st or like late June last year. We had like a press screening ready and everything. And like at the last minute, it just ended. Hmm. It was like, nope. Yeah. I mean, I think what happened was they were hoping to get good buzz out of cons, which is where it premiered last year or maybe the year before. No, I think it was last year. Yeah. And then um, it didn't quite get the response they wanted. It didn't get bad reviews, not 
across the board bad. Just got kind of like uh, shaky reviews. Like some people liked it, some people, like I said, yes. didn't quite know what to think of it. So it was kind of a varied response. And I think A24 realized, oh, this isn't quite the slam dunk we thought it was going to be. And then I think there was a part of their team that was like, oh, we can push it toward December and maybe we work it a little bit and get it ready for award season. And then I guess somewhere along the lines, they kind of realized that this is not in any stretch of the imagination an awards film, not even an awards uh, oh, no. season that has oh, no. Hacksaw Ridge in it. Huh. Uh, I know that wasn't out the same year as that, but I, I think even the Academy in 2016 would, would dismiss this film. Uh, not yes. for its own lack of merits, I think just rather it just doesn't fit it doesn't fit their scene. This isn't like an Academy film by any oh, stretch no, imagine no, no. of the yeah, stretch of the imagination. So I think what the initial plan was, and this isn't official, so this is just me speculating. This is my little conspiracy theory uh for the film is yeah. that I think what they wanted to do was they wanted to give it a spring release around this time uh, in 2019. And I think they wanted to kind of do an underground marketing campaign where they were kind of promoting it to like sites like Reddit or sites that would kind of uh, get soaked up in the mystery and maybe like watch the film more than once to kind of piece together the clues and like kind of figure out what clues are meant to be intentional, what was actual foreshadowing, what's like in like uh, false red herrings and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. uh, the movie does play a lot uh, a lot with the idea of like what is actually a clue and what's like a diversion or what is just random chaotic meandering nothing. Uh, and so I think they wanted to appeal to the Reddit kind of conspiracy crowd. But what happened was that because the movie was still on track to be released on its normal schedule overseas, the film just kind of came out in other countries outside of the United States and Canada. And I think it just kind of made its way online by December or like maybe uh, early winter in November. And I think the crowd that would have been interested in that just saw it online that way. And they obviously weren't going to pay money to see for it at the point. Cause they can just find it online in a pretty clear copy. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think they kind of realized that they didn't have like a clear way of making money with this or not as much as they would have hoped. So I think they just kind of cut their losses and made it primarily VOD release, which is a shame because like I said, the main reason I was trying to lead up to this is that I think the biggest shame about this film not getting a theatrical release is not getting to see the cinematography on the big screen, which I think it would have been, it would have really popped on the big screen if most people had been getting a chance to see it that way. But unfortunately, uh, that's how it goes these days. But what do you have anything to say about that in particular? Well, it was a weird strategy for them um, because I think they missed a bit of an opportunity. I know that they had high life. They were promoting Mm-hmm. Claire Denis film, and obviously that's a very similar film to this in terms and of climax. Huh? Oh, in climax, Gaspar Noé. Oh, film. that's right. Yeah. So they had the Gaspar Noé film and the Claire Denis film, which obviously you respect them for being behind films by directors like that, who obviously have a lot of respect. But at the same time, those are not audience films. Um, I remember when Climax was out; it was actually playing at the Disney World movie theater, um, and I kind of thought. I might go see this at the Disney World movie theater. But I also (laughs) thought, wait a second, why is this movie playing at Disney Springs? And then I thought, wow, that's a a fit. So I didn't end up seeing it. But I kind of, I feel like they almost had to, like, choose, you know, which non-audience movies they wanted to distribute. Because A24 goes, like, to the chains. Like, they don't just stick on the art house circuit. They try to distribute their films all over the country. And that's why you would see Climax come into theaters at Disney, Disney, the AMC Disney Springs, which I hope, I hope no families accidentally would go watch that one. But, you know, I think that there's this, you know, gamble in terms of distribution that they didn't really feel comfortable trying to put so many resources behind this when they had films like High Life and Climax, which were doing much better with critics um although i feel like this one is a missed opportunity because you could put this it would be like a midnight movie or maybe a one-off showing somewhere and it would find its audience like i think this will develop somewhat of a cult following i know that that's not again like some people know that there's an irony that you can't really say this is a cult movie because it has to kind of organically earn that status but I think this movie is one that people will begin to kind of think about, like, hey, what happened to this? Or, oh, Andrew Garfield was in this, and you sit down and watch it. 
I think that David Robert Mitchell has a really big career ahead of him. I think this is kind of just going to be one of those things where he had a small movie that's actually kind of bigger for him, and then he goes to do something else and maybe go back to horror and kind of be happy. But it's it's a weird thing. I think A24 should have had more faith in it because I think High Life is proving to be very divisive um, in the like, audience community. I have some friends that have seen it that are really – definite cinephiles and they just kind of look and go, I didn't understand what watch. And then I have other people that are like, yes, I understand everything. So I've not seen it. I'm looking forward to watching it soon, but I think that definitely there is too much like a, like eighth grade was a definite audience movie they had last year. I think first reformed is not an audience movie, but it's an easier sit than a lot of these films so respect to them for distributing films like this i think a lot of that studio i know it's kind of becoming a cliche thing that you like that if you like independent film but they really are the forerunners right now in terms of distributing cool stuff so i respect them a lot but at the same time i don't think they did this movie justice because i think it it got dumped i mean if you're just we're gonna be honest like they dumped this thing and i think that you know, this, you could have pushed this into the summer and it would have found an audience on the art house circuit, at least. Like, I think their distribution model is a little bit erstwhile. I don't know why they're so dependent on putting these things in the chains. Um, otherwise, just to recoup funds or to try to find those audiences that don't have access to the art houses, which I do respect. Now, if that's the angle, I appreciate it. But at the same time, I wish that they would have given this a bit bit more of a wider run or have not just gone straight to VOD. Cause I do think that there was a little bit more there that would have found more of an audience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I do think um, ultimately in the grand scheme of things, as far as a 24 is concerned, uh, I still have immense respect for them. I think what they do, like you said, for independent art house films is very commendable. And the fact they've been able to distribute a lot of these films to pretty much a wide audience or as, as wide as an audience as most of these movies could hope for, uh, is certainly respectable and commendable in a lot of different ways. But yeah, I, I hope this is a fluke for them as far as their distribution cycle is concerned. Cause I am worried that we might have more, kind of fallouts like this where they don't hundred percent know what they, what to do with certain movies. And then they kind of fall through the circuits like this. And cause it's easy to kind of forget that this is a fairly young company. Like we put mm-hmm. a lot of credibility into them for, I think good reason, but at the same time we have to remember that, you know, they're still kind of getting their bearings in a lot of different respects. And I think this one kind of threw them off their axis a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think they tried to handle it as best they could, but they, they made the mistake of not, just, I think, chugging forward with it last summer and just releasing it, you know, semi-negative reviews be damned, just kind of, like, putting it out there and being like, you know, we'll let the audience see if they like it or not. I think that would have been a little more respectful and a little better for the film. And I think that would have been, I don't know if it would have been profitable, but I think it would have been maybe a little more uh, well-received than it ultimately was. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, like you said, I think this is a cult film. I think the audience who wants this film or who's going to, find themselves appealed by it are going to seek it out or they're going to find it or they're going to hear about it from their friends. So I do think in some way or another, through some mechanism, they're going to find this movie, I, I hope. But uh, yeah, I, I do kind of wish there was a way that in a more perfect world that we could have seen this movie in a, uh, I guess, a little more traditional release schedule. But, you know, these things happen. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still glad I ultimately got to see it. Uh, even if it wasn't the optimal way of seeing it. But uh, I guess now we kind of dive into our initial kind of early thoughts and as far as just explain the broad overview of the film. Uh, do you have anything else to say before we go into spoilers? You know, I would just say that, you know, if you're thinking about watching it and you don't really want to know what's going on, like this, you're using this as a review to springboard you. Um, no, it's, it's a challenging film. I think that, you know, that David Robert Mitchell made it to be like that. Like it's, it's almost, it's, you know, almost 140 minutes. I mean, it's, it's dense. It's very late. It's, you know, it's, it's challenging in its ideas. It's very ambiguous in certain areas. It's very reality suspended in certain ways. In some ways it's kind of obvious. Like it's a, it's a rewarding film. If you're into this sort of thing, like I, I think that's the main modifier for it is like if you like movies like this 
and you like a little bit of macabre, you like a little bit of just kind of weird, you know, like an inherent vice, but for a more modern audience, like I think that that's, that's the film I think is I'm closest to in terms of if you liked this, you might like this. Because if you hated Inherent Vice, I don't know if you'd like a movie like this. Because it's very much honoring kind of the Robert, you know, Chandler traditions almost of, you know, these old, like, noir type, uh, not Robert Chandler. What, who am I trying to think of? <laughs> I don't know who Robert Chandler is. <laughs> Wait. Oh, hon. <laughs> that's that's the, yeah, the 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 great tradition of uh, Robert Chandler. No, uh, Philip Marlowe and Ray, Raymond Chandler. Oh, okay. Going back to the old like noir, like because it, it all goes back to the Long Goodbye. That's the original star in noir that like kicked everything off. So it's like, and then obviously you go back to the forties with movies like The Big Sleep. I mean, you know, we can list all the noirs out, but that type of movie has continued to evolve over the years and. This film is like a modern update on that type of film. So if you kind of appreciate the history there and you want to see that evolve more towards a, you know, millennial slant, then I'd say, yeah, give this a look. But if you don't like movies like that, then you might not get these two hours back. And there's nothing wrong with that. Some people just don't like these types of films and that's okay. But I definitely do. And that's why I was really happy I watched it. Yeah, I'm. Not too far off from what you're saying. I do think ultimately if you even if you don't think you're going to like the film, I do think if you think that this might have some appeal to you or even if you don't, if you think that this may not be your thing, I'd still at least give it a shot. I can totally understand if this is not everyone's bag. I mean, obviously, the polarized response seems to suggest that it's definitely not working for a large number of people. And, you know, I think in many respects, that makes sense. Uh, I also think some people are selling the movie a little short, but yeah. that's how these things go. But um yeah, it's definitely a challenging, sometimes frustrating, and, uh, you know, pretty often hard film to sit with. But at the same time, there is something, you know, very fascinating and uh, intentionally intriguing and mystique, uh, or mesmerizing, I guess is what I was trying to say, uh, as far as what the movie's doing and what it's able to accomplish. And I do think uh, what it proves as far as uh, David Robert Mitchell as a filmmaker, I think it does showcase that he is really on the rise. I don't think it suggests that it follows with a fluke. I think it shows that he has some clear talent. While this film isn't quite as structurally sound, I think, as um, it follows, or quite as uh, rigorously tight as that film was narratively, uh, I, I do think that's intentional. I think he's trying to expand himself. I do think he's trying to stretch his legs a little bit here. And, you know, even the stuff that doesn't quite work, I applaud him for, you know, being willing to make a film like this, which is like we've suggested pretty far from your conventional noir film or even your conventional film in general. So yeah, I think that's, that's a good place to leave it as far as our general non-spoilery thoughts on the film. Uh, I don't know what exact grade I'm going to give it and it might change by the time we do spoilers, but for now I'm feeling a B plus. How about you, Corey? That's exactly where I would go. I think B plus is a perfect grade. Yeah. I don't know if it's quite a territory, but I might, it might work its way up there depending on how I feel about it in a few minutes. Cause I do think, I think my general view of it right now is that I think it's a good movie with great moments, Yeah. but uh, I, it might be a great film with great moments. I, I don't know. I'm, but definitely right now I think it's at least good. So yeah. Um, I don't know if there's a, if, I forget if there's a official way we get into spoilers, but we'll just say spoilers in three, two, one, go. All right. So the end of Endgame is quite—it's uh, quite a sight to see. Oh man, don't I—I uh, I, I don't know. I think most people have seen Endgame by now, but let's yeah, let's, let's save them. Yeah, but um, yeah. Spoilers yeah. for uh, Under Silver Lake. I don't even know where really to begin. Um, yeah, there's a big social media push. Don't spoil the Silver Lake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't poison uh, the lake. Yeah, don't exactly. drain the All lake stars from the film don't you spoil it and it's like yeah. uh what, wait what movie <laughs> don't blacken the lake i don't know what yeah the, exactly um don't, don't, don't sink yeah so i think uh the film as far as like the opening is concerned where we introduce this world where there's like a guy going a mysterious person going around who is seeking out people with dogs and killing them and, you know, like basically harassing these people and leaving the mild suggestion that may or may not be our main protagonist, the character uh, we're going to be sitting with for the next two and a half hours. I think that kind of gets off the book, uh, like right off the bat, like, Hey, 
you know, like this is, uh, this is not going to be for everybody, but is that kind of your thought process going or is that me just kind of over speculating things? I think like, again, the opening scene, it's like those little, sh- those little pictures and they like, they cut really fast and you go right to the little like restaurant shop or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like the girls looking through the window and it's like, you kind of get that little like LA vibe going on. But I think it establishes itself that this character, and this is my central thing with the movie that I wasn't always crazy about, is that Sam, who Andrew Garfield's character, is not always sympathetic. Right, yeah. There's something off about him at the least, yeah. Yeah, it's like he's a little more hedonistic, I think, than, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's character in Inherent Vice or Elliot Gould in Long Goodbye. Because I think a lot of the reason we love movies like this is because it's easy to root for these characters. Not that they're necessarily like, you know, bastions of morality, but it's like they kind of have this like, yeah, he's a nice guy. Yeah. Well, um, that's the interesting thing. Yeah. It's like um, with The Long Goodbye and Inherent Vice, those examples you gave, those characters, I mean, they're not, uh, you know, maybe not the best detectives out there, but they are they are working jobs. They, they are doing what they their professions are technically. They're not mm-hmm. they're not being well paid for it or not being compensated, exactly. but they are doing their jobs. It, to me, it, it reminded me a little bit more of um, the Big Lebowski in that respect, because Andrew Garfield's character, they never make explicitly clear what his job was or was or what he do, he was supposed to do. Like, it, it's not clear, like how he gets any income at all. And yeah. it's, it's, you know, they make a point to suggest that like, he's kind of on his last legs. Like he's not making his car payments. He's getting threatened to get kicked out. And he has some very strong opinions uh, about the homeless community in LA. And it's kind of fascinating that like his character is so close to being homeless himself. So there's like this weird kind of contradiction or like maybe some like internal self-loathing there that I found pretty sure. fascinating. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely, you're definitely right there in that his character, he, he, He's not maybe like the worst person in the world, but he's definitely not someone you typically associate as your, your protagonist in a two-hour film. Like it, it's not a character you completely endear to, and I don't think you're supposed to. I think that's where some of the criticisms are starting to come into film, understandably and not, is that I think some people – it's not clear if we're, how much we're supposed to sympathize with this character or uh, how much we're supposed to like kind of root for him in a, a kind of – uh, simplistic sense like are we really do we want him to succeed and, and, and that's kind of left gray like i don't know like I, I think i'm pretty fascinated by what he's trying to do and i kind of like want to go down this like uh this bread trail but the uh, crumb trail i guess to figure out what's going to happen but at the same time like i'm often pretty like off put by who sam is as a person would that would that be where you are as well yeah, I think there are moments where it's like, you know, I, I don't not like this character and I like Andrew Garfield. So it's like he kind of naturally puts off this vibe of, yeah, I like him. But in this movie, it's like there are moments where he doesn't always make the best decision. Um, you know, he kind of has that dual relationship with the girl who you think is his girlfriend, but then he also kind of wants to get to know the girl he sees at the pool that drives the <laughs> plot. And then, you know, there's just... There's just kind of this, you know, I think one of the central themes of the film is kind of narcissism and a very much a 21st century form of narcissism where, you know, and maybe it's more like it's very, you know, geographically centered in L.A. And just this sense of like people are just kind of out for themselves to have a good time. And it's like you have this guy who's on this big quest to try to find all these answers, but he's really not trying to find them for any other reason than his own interests. Like he's really, cause he, he wants to find the girl, but he wants to find the girl because, you know, he's, he kind of gets wrapped up in his own life. And it's just like, you know, you see other films where it's like, people are trying to achieve something. They're trying to accomplish or find somebody, but there's more of a push of, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do, or I'm doing this because it's somebody I love. And there's some sort of a genuine emotion tied to that. And obviously at the end of the film, you realize really where his central thing was. And I think a lot of this is surrealism. There's a fascinating conversation to be had of how much of this is real, how much of this is in his own head. Mm -hmm. Like there's just like this whole, especially the scene with, you know, we'll talk probably a little bit later about the, uh, the songwriter and how bizarre that scene is and the ramifications of that and don't see what it means for the whole picture. So I I don't think he's a character we're supposed to root for, but in the end, I think that Mitchell wants us to all to see a side of ourselves in him and see that, 
you know, he's just kind of a dude. He's not really a bad person, but he's just kind of a, a self-pleasing person that kind of is a little bit lazy and, you know, kind of running by the skin of his teeth. And I, I think in a movie like this, I have to be here for over two hours. It can at times be a little draining if I can't exactly be with this character or want to spend time with him. Because this guy, there were moments where I was kind of like, I really don't know if I care what happens to him. While I'm at times fascinated by his goings-on and what he's seeing and the story that he's in, I don't always care about him necessarily. And I think that maybe that's the point, but I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree for the most part because there's something about this film that I think is just almost inherently just indulgent. I don't sure. really mean that in a negative way. I mostly mean in a positive sort of way. That like I don't think you can really make a film like this without being fairly indulgent and i do think in the sense that like i i think the film intentionally doesn't want you to take it that seriously i don't think it it expects you to uh really put too much stake into what's going on like you said there's a pretty clear set well an unclear sense of what's happening and a clear idea that like most of what's happening may or may not be real like it's kind of like touch and go as far as like where reality begins and fantasy ends or uh, scratch that, reverse it, like Willy Wonka was said. Um, yeah, I, I think, especially like certain scenes where, since we're in sports, we can say it like the songwriter scene where he like just straight up like murders somebody, yeah. uh, and like there's no consequences for that, or he like like assaults that one guy and like like uh, the Jesus guy, and there's like no real consequences for that. Like most of the things he does on his quest, like there's no real ramifications except the threat of being evicted or his car being towed. Like that's. For the most part, like the only real consequences. Oh, and like other people around him, you know. And I think that's another issue that people might have is that like the film has kind of like almost a uh, morose way of like looking at other characters, especially women. I think you can argue, yeah. Uh, like they they can. I think some people could argue that they might be used as props. Uh, I think it's more what the filmmaker is trying to say. I don't know. It's something I'm kind of gray on right now. Truth be told, there's something interesting. I think also like towards the end of the film, how it's like. Garfield's character is seen a bit kind of pathetic around women. And it's almost like the film is trying to keep women away from him in a way. Like mm-hmm. it's like, you guys can do better than this because obviously, you know, at the end of the film, the whole thing he's chasing after is just somebody that just kind of ghosted him and didn't yeah. really wasn't interested in him at all. And I guess we could talk about that a little bit you know, later. No, we could. I mean, I think um, when you see him around women, you kind of see his true colors in certain respects. Yes. Like yeah. you kind of just see like the full extent of like who he is as a person pretty much. And, you know, obviously there are other times where he gets pretty like aggressive around, like he like, beat up some kids for like vandalizing <laughs> his car, which is like probably one of the like more messed up things he does in the film. And mm-hmm. like the weird thing is like the film is almost kind of like expecting you to like root for him in that scene almost. Like he's like, there's something kind of weirdly like, darkly comedic about that scene that like, I think that's one of those early signs where like the film like is like intentionally kind of being like, you know, like, you know, this may not be your thing. Like, you know, like kind of early on being like, you know, like this isn't, it follows like, it's not going to appeal to everybody. Like we're beating up kids in like the first 20 minutes. So like, just, just know what you're getting into here. You know, the exits to the left, this is in your deal. So like, yeah, I definitely think the movie, um, it definitely has elements like that where, you know, it's kind of hard to say how much of it's intentional, I guess, and how much of it is not. But I do think I I, I don't know if it commu- is communicated completely clear throughout the film, but I do think David Robert Mitchell knows exactly what film he wants to make. And I think for the most part, that's communicated throughout the film. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I, I think it's definitely a film of themes. Um, it's a film where you have to question the reality he's in. I think a lot of it is metaphorical and Again, the whole film boils down to this guy can't get over a breakup and a girl broke up with him and he can't really figure out what to do with himself after that. So it's very much a commentary on, I think, modern romance and, you know, how guys in these situations at times try to cope. And, you know, the whole movie is just this guy trying to figure out how he's going to, like, continue to find that feeling, I guess, of being, you know, wanted by someone. And he goes to all these lengths because he thinks this girl might have liked him. And at the end of the day, the whole thing is, no, the girl wasn't into you. She just just saw you and was being nice. It kind of reminds me of a little bit of the discourse around 500 Days of Summer. Yeah. Where it's not 100% clear. Like, I think one's appreciation of that film often depends upon whether you recognize the film um, 
as like sympathetic towards that character or as kind of a critique or commentary on it um, or that genre, you know, like that kind of like male fantasy or, you know, it's another from the kind of twist and turns between like realism and fantasy there Sure. where, um, yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of that in the sense that like this film, I think it's very dependent on like how much you accept the film as like, like you said, more of like a commentary or a film about themes or you see it as like kind of expecting you to like or sympathize with uh, Sam as a character. And I feel like more so than Firehead Days of Summer, this film, I think it's a little more uh, reserved, I guess, in its portrayal of its characters. I think it's intentionally kind of taking like a stance away from sympathizing with any of them. I think sure. in that sense, it might seem a little cruel to some people, like especially how it's willing to, you know, kill or injure a lot of its supporting characters might seem a bit shallow or like inconsiderate, but yeah, like I think, like you said, I mean, this is definitely a film, like you said about themes. So I think I respect in that regard. And ultimately I, I have to see the film as what it's trying to do and not, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think I'm ultimately on its side more than I'm not. Yeah, I think I am too. I, 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 it's, it, it can be enthralling. Like you look at the scene where they go down to the kind of the bunker bar <laughs> and like, you know, where he goes with Zosia Mammoth's character and they're like partying a little bit. And just the way he shoots that scene, it's just so fascinating. And it does a great job of building tension, of dragging the story along. I think that he's much more interested in trying to tell the story and get you fascinated. And, yeah, we actually are going to, like, you know, bring in the owl woman. And we're, we actually are going to, you know, connect all these dots and take you in that direction. We're not going to, at least in this film since pull the rug out from under you in a way where you have to be subverted. Now we're actually going to take you in this direction and take this thing down to the end and keep it consistent with the weirdness and kind of that, like, you know, almost just like, you know, Gothic Wes Anderson twee almost, you know, it's like, it's like this kind of seventies, you know, you know, it's kind of spooky. Like, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's like that vibe that, you know, it's like Tim Burton-y almost, where it's just like, you know, like the vampire band. And it's just like, it, it commits. And I think that this director wanted this film to commit fully. Yeah. We don't know if what's happening is really, I think that you can watch this film and think that this guy is seeing things in his mind or imagining things that really aren't happening. And you can really see this story playing out in a very normal way. The guy spends a lot of time trying to find this girl who he thought he liked. And he realized that the girl didn't like him. And he was trying to do that because a girl dumped him originally. And he just wants to find another thing. And then he finds it again and realizes, All right, whatever. And his life keeps going. Yeah. 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 I think, um, there is something similar to long goodbye and inherent vice. That's pretty laissez faire about the story. Sure. But I think, um, given his, or at least his, his previous film being a horror film, there is like that kind of driving dread or intensity throughout the film that I think kind of gives it, uh, it's energy or like kind of it's compelling nature, because I think if it was just a film where most of the time, Andrew Garfield was just kind of, you know, going around and sleeping with different women or like, you know, trying to sleep with different women that would have gotten old pretty quick. Mm. You know, I think even, you know, someone in your corner who like really respects Garfield as much as you do, I think that would, you might even find yourself a bit, uh, strained by like just how much the movie would be willing to just indulge in this character's like need to like kind of just flirt and try to sure. have sex with different characters. But, um, I do think like that driving sense of like something is lurking in the shadows, something may or may not actually be happening here. There might be a tangible threat happening. Is I think what keeps it interesting, or at least what kept me compelled throughout the film. What do you say? You're in the same camp in that regard. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that it's definitely a movie about paranoia, and obviously, you go to the '70s, which is a huge time for paranoia cinema. I mean, that was a huge time where people were scared of surveillance. People were scared of you know things that were going on underneath the surface of things. What does this mean? Like. You know, a lot of that kind of came out of the 60s, late 60s, mm -hmm. and flowed into 70s cinema. Um, the Conversation is a wonderful movie that deals with surveillance. And I feel like that movies like that, like, that came from that era, that's just always the one that I think of, that deal with that thing of who's being watched, is there more going on underneath the surface? And I think that this film comes down to the conclusion that yes and no. It's like... Almost now, like with internet conspiracy theories and just like, you know, Reddit's, you know, sub files and, 
you know, all these different Twitter strands. Like it's just, we live in a society where it's like, we want to find more meaning in what happens. And I think this film tries to be like, yeah, we, you, maybe you will find more meaning here, but even the more meaning you're trying to find still doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I think for, um, for me, one of the scenes in the film where it really became clear or that really struck out or struck with me was, um, when they were in, in like that field area, Topher Grace and Andrew Garfield, and they're kind of complaining about how like there's like no privacy, essentially, like the, like there's always these surveillance, all these like computers that are kind of taking the privacy away from people. But at the same time, like they're having like a little drone scan the city. And it's like they're complaining about these things. But at the same time, you know, they're they're hypocrites because they're like literally just doing the thing that they're complaining about, like at the exact same time. And it's one of those weird scenes where it's like. It it's it felt to me very intentional as far as a commentary of the film being like, yeah, you know, like definitely a time of paranoia like this where we're kind of seeing like you're saying like a resurgence of that 70s paranoia now that like we have all these computers and like all these different uh, means through which like people could be spying on other people. Uh, you know, nobody really knows how to make sense of that because there's never really been a time like that in history. But at the same time, so many people are willing to like go on social media and like you know, use their computers like throughout the day or their smartphones or whatever. And it's like this weird kind of uh pointed commentary that I think, you know, in, in the wrong hands could have seemed a little uh, uh maybe, you know, a little too, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here, but um I think it works here in that respect that I don't know. It just, I think that scene communicated what it wanted to say just enough to the point where it worked for me. Uh But did you get that same feel from that scene? Yeah, I, I think the film is just so in-depth with what it's trying to say. It's like every single moment is like, it's just really hard to exactly like know what's real or not. But it's like you always kind of, it's really not a hard movie to like discern the thesis. And I think that's one of the things about it that really makes it effective. It's just like, I really don't struggle with what he's trying to say here. And it's feel it's a very I think it's a very critical film. I think that he's really trying to find these holes in really millennialism and trying to see that this generation where obviously I think Sam the one thing about the character is I think his parents have funded him a lot mm-hmm. and that he's may, he may have run out of his parents' money to take care of himself. And I think that Mitchell may have seen a lot growing up of these people that have their parents paying for everything and they kind of live their life without a lot of worry and you know, it's like, I feel like it's, it is very hedonistic. And it's just like, I'm here to pleasure myself and I'm here to get the highs I want to get and be with the people I want to be with and have the fun I want to have. And it's like, doesn't really matter, whatever. And I think that he's trying to be like, yeah, and these people are terrible. So, you know, there, there is kind of a fatalistic sense to the film that I think is pretty prevalent. Yeah, I mean, it would definitely be fascinating. Speaking of the, uh, what you're, the themes you're talking about there, it would be fascinating to, see this film with like the beach bum and how sure. it kind of uh, explores uh hedonism in the same different respects, you know, yeah, but, but the, except with that film, it's a little more about the uh, like baby boomer generation as opposed to the millennial generation. So yeah, definitely the uh, uh, generation gap there. Similarities and differences in many different respects, but yeah, going back to your earlier point, yeah, I do think a lot of the themes here are, are a lot of the, the commentary that's meant to be gleaned here is it's it's not like on the nose, but it's it's not hard to, you know, get, you know, like obviously like having the main musician that everyone's appealed with being Jesus, you know, it's a commentary on like, you know, celebrity worship and like how all, a lot of these characters are kind of like obsessed with like film and entertainment and pop culture and, uh, you know, like not really like you know, like it's kind of accepting that like these things are to be valued, but not really fully uh, knowing why or like or understanding exactly where they come from. You know, it's, it's something that's made very apparent throughout the film. But I think in the in the right scenes, those are the ones that really struck me. And I think we mentioned it earlier, but like the song or the songwriter scene uh, was one that I think is uh, where the film, I think, really kind of struck a chord with me where it really just kind of... Uh, came into full fruition just like really stood out to me as one of those great moments in the film just because i mean obviously you know it's saying exactly what it wants to say in that scene but how it's communicated how it's well directed and edited and having like that music kind of driving the scene it, it did kind of you know talking about another harmony korean movie talked it reminded me a little bit of that scene in spring breakers where they're 
with the piano and uh, James Franco is yeah. playing uh, Britney Spears while they're talking about this like heist they're about to do uh, and all this stuff. Yeah, it's very it's a very weird uh, film in that regard as far as like how it communicates these very broad and uh, you know very uh, pointed themes or commentary. But yeah, I'd say for the most part, even though like I definitely think there's some things here we didn't dwell on too much where I think it tries to say certain things about certain subjects that I think kind of are left wanting or like maybe it, it might try to do a little too much for what's trying to accomplish here. But I'd say in the most respect, in most respects, the, what the film is trying to do here, it succeeds. Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's an aggressive film. Oh yeah. It's like, you look at that scene with the songwriter and it's viscerally violent. And there are lots of moments in the film that do have a violence or a horror to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that a lot of those scenes are, if you really were looking at what's really going on in his world, they're definitely imagined. I mean, obviously he, that would probably didn't go to somebody's house and discover all these things. And, but it's like, you know, it's kind of that journey that a lot of people that millennials, I guess, go on where you have to like see life for how it actually is and not how is how you kind of want to have it in your head. It's like the music you love. Yeah. It didn't come from a corporate side of things. And it was manufactured at times to meet a grander audience. It's like, you know, there is this like, you know, inevitably that's like, you know, dreams versus reality that a lot of people that are younger go through. And I think that the film really digs at that and almost has some fun with trying to like use that as an itself. It's on horror. I think it's a wonderful film that meets a, we're kind of getting more millennial cinema going, you know, you're going to, you're beginning to see more like, I'm not a huge fan of the film, but unicorn store, I think is one of the very first films to really deal with that. Mm Mm-hmm fresh out of college, don't find a job type of, you know, malfeasance, still living at home and dealing with things that lots of folks that are like 20 to 32 are dealing with. And I think that it's a slice of cinema that, you know, people who are living it or have lived it have had to go through it to tell those stories. And I think this is one of the very first films that I'm sure a lot of people who are a little bit older might not connect with, but it's because they're not really there. Yeah. You know, I'm smack dab in the middle of it, so I can definitely see where there's a bit more of a, you know, a bit more of an alluring factor, I think, to younger audiences. And I ultimately think that's where it will find its most interest. For sure. Yeah. I mean, going back to um, what you're making the comparison to uh, Unicorn Sore, I mean, similar to you, that film didn't really appeal to me. It didn't work for me exactly. But I see a film like that and I look at another film like Garden State, which, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously that film's kind of ridiculed now, I think, as being a little hokey and cheesy. And, you know, I mean, I can't can't dismiss that. But I do think at that time it spoke to that generation, that kind of aimlessness in a way that felt very, like, stark and real. Uh, and you know, I think that that might happen here. I don't know. I mean, who knows what the response will be to this film in like 10 or 15 years. I don't know if it'll be dismissed or if they will be, you know, like kind of a little too indulgent, maybe a little too up its own ass in certain respects. But I think to your point, yeah, I, I do think there is something about what's saying about millennial culture and like how it's kind of speaking to the now and like how we're just kind of processing things and dealing with things right now that it feels very relevant and sincere in a way that, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know. If that makes it a little more polarizing for older audiences or maybe even younger audiences. But yeah, I do think for like people our age, it, it does kind of strike a chord in many different respects. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, it's just like it's just the whole fact that it boils down to this guy can't get over a, a breakup. Mm-hmm. I think it kind of deals with a little bit of that male fragility and this guy is kind of, you know, and I think one of the big things in the film that really stuck to me was Topher Grace's character. And that scene where he's like using the um, the little uh, drone to like spy on the girl. Oh yeah, that's the one I was talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, it's like really, really seedy, and it's just like um, you know, it's just, it's just, it's like, it's like the the whole film comes down to like, oh wow, so this is kind of like where we are now, and it's like they just kind of dismiss it, like it's a big deal in the moment, but it's just like you know, he goes on to another misadventure, and it's just like. It is, it is very hypercritical. It's just like these characters just don't care. They're just sitting there watching these girls in a very private setting. And yeah. It kind of just flows into something else. And I think that the film wants you to feel uncomfortable at times. Because it's like, yeah, this is this is probably just how life is in certain places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that scene particularly is pretty telling because, um, you know, as we follow that scene later 
it's revealed that like the woman he's looking into isn't really like doing anything that like promiscuous or naughty. It's yeah. just her like on her bed crying. And like, even Andrew Garfield's character is a little like weirded out by it. And that kind of speaks to like many respects, like, you know, with, with privacy, not being, you know, like the, the, vo- like the, the wall of privacy being gone, like people have access to like people's lives. And the question becomes like, not so much like, what can we do? But like, why are we doing certain things? Like, yeah, yeah, we have this like capability to like lean, like, you know, like look at random people's like Snapchat or Instagrams or whatever, but it's like, why are we looking at this? Or like, why do we choose to like have like these very intense moments on Twitter or something where we like look at someone's very like vulnerable moment or like a, like, like we obsess over like somebody like crying over Britney Spears or something. Like, it's just like this kind of like, like this big why question, like, you know, like, like it could be funny, it could be sad, but it's just like, what, what's like the driving need in a lot of things now for like millennia culture, especially with like internet culture, like what, what kind of drives people to like get, have this intense fascination with other people's lives. Now yeah, we have exactly. like this technology to like look into other people's lives in this way. Yeah. It's like not even so much like, what can we do, but like, why do we do what we do with this technology? And yeah, it's definitely very, it's a very telling film in that regard, but yeah, I, I do. I do wonder, yeah, like we were saying earlier, um, what it, once this film gets a bigger audience, what the general response is going to be from other people. I don't know if it's going to grow. I think it will, but I, I do wonder if that might turn some people off more than it invites people in. But it sounds like we're we're thinking that it's probably going to get a cult audience more than likely than it's not. I think it will develop its following in the film community, and I think there'll be this like you know an indie circuit of folks that will discover this film and they'll watch it. And I think it's a film where you can maybe find your own message in it, which is kind of the irony since it's a film where this kid's just going around and finding things and no power. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just a, you know, I think that you've kind of hit the nail on the head. It it is a film. I think about desensitized, you know, how desensitized we've become to the lives of others. And there's a whole movie, you know, lives of others that kind of deals with <laughs> yeah. this whole, you know, idea. It's Great like, movie. Oh yeah. It's like, there's just this whole, again, like you just, you just think about social media and it's just like, we've become desensitized to what people see about us. I mean, it's like, we're, we're not just watching people's lives. We're being watched. And it's like, do we even care about that anymore? Like, you know, do we like with Facebook's privacy stuff and they're taking information and selling it? It's just kind of like, do we even care that people know what we're doing anymore? It's just like the walls are beginning to kind of tumble in our lives. And you wonder like how much it's worrisome that we're watching others. But it's also like with Sam at the very end of the film, it's like he knows that that society of people is now they know he's there and they've marked his apartment and they're like, you better not say anything. He doesn't really seem to care. He's just kind of like, all right, whatever. And there's almost like this apathy that like, oh yeah, these crazy people that, you know, have this secret society have now marked him to where if he says anything, they're going to come get him. And he's being watched himself now. But he almost kind of laughs like, oh, whatever. And it's like, you could really see that character not really even responding to that after going through all of these crazy things. So it's just like, how how much do we care about what we're watching and how much do we care about us being watched or is it just too late? Are we just in a society of vision now where it's like privacy is kind of a thing of the past? I don't know. It's just it's a kind of a fascinating conundrum. Yeah, I mean, especially that last shot that you're referring to with the uh, apartment. He's like literally on the outside looking in. I mean, that's how I read the shot, at least. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like you said, like now he has all this information, you know, like some of it is kind of, you know, whatever, like, random occurrences, and some of it seems to be, like, pretty profound and, like, life-altering. But, uh, you know, especially at this point now, he's, like, fairly... He's still fairly young, and, like, he could, if he wanted to, turn things around, but does he really want to? And, like, is he actually going to use this information for good, or was this whole... Uh, exercise just kind of for not like was he they just kind of get all this information just to like still mess around or dick around like he was before and i think that's another thing too about the film that i noticed that it's like there's a lot of like um phallic imagery throughout the film you know directly and otherwise and i think that's kind of like the director here kind of winking at the audience and being like i'm kind of dicking around with you guys like you know like i kind of want you to enjoy the film you know get some get some of these ideas out, but at the same time, I don't want you to take it too seriously. Like, don't like, don't obsess about like this, this character is like, he, like this, this shouldn't be like your mindset here. Like, I'm just kind of jerking your chain a little bit, like just have fun. So it's like that weird kind of like mix. Like I was saying earlier, like it's like, 
intentionally kind kind of intense like you're kind of supposed to get into it in some respects but at the same time there is like this kind of casual nature to it where you're supposed to be a little reserved and be like you know you know like these characters are pretty messed up you don't really want to be like this guy like you don't want to deal with like these circumstances this way because you'll be very unhealthy and very toxic as a person and that will just mess you up like in the long run in relationships in life and like in any different respects as far as like what your personhood is going to be like so yeah, it's a very difficult balance to make. And I think I respect him for, you know, maybe not pulling off 100%, but doing enough that he does well here. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a film that, like the main character, sometimes you just have to move on. If things don't really make sense or, you know, you can't really always grasp things, it's just better not to sit there and obsess over it and kind of keep going. Because one thing about society now is that people are very obsessive about what certain things mean and you kind of debate things. And it's like, I think this is almost a little bit of a reactionary thing to the political moment where it's just like, there's almost this moment where it's like, well, you can sit here and obsess over, you know, what this means and try to find meaning in it. Or you could just kind of move on and try to fix it. And I think that we're in a society now that's more interested in dissecting why it happened as opposed to trying to make sure it doesn't happen again, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this character almost like, like with the relationship, he's so hung up on where he used to be that he's not willing to kind of go out and try again in a healthy way, I guess, because it's like he's just kind of trying to chase something that was once there. And I think that's another problem with the current you know, generation we're in is that people can get a little bit love lorn at times when things don't go well. And, you know, there is kind of an obsessive nature with trying to recreate a nostalgia. I think it's like, you know, half of our entertainment now is trying to recreate what you felt when you were a kid. So, you know, there's just, there's, you could write a, you could write a whole paper on this movie. I mean, there's no shortage of ideas to play. Yeah. I mean, I will say, um, we'll probably wrap up pretty soon, but I do want to add that, uh, similar to your point there, I do think, I know you haven't seen the film, so I won't try to spoil anything in particular, but I do think in many respects, this film is, like a commentary on it follows as far as not, mm-hmm. not the film itself, but rather the response to it in the sense that I think when that film came out, it got bigger than I think anyone involved anticipated would. And in doing so, I think people like kind of uh, spent too long, like focusing on the like questions that weren't supposed to be like focused upon in his view. Like people kept wondering like, Oh, what is it exactly? Like, what is it? This is it this. And like, it got kind of like broader and more far fetched as far as the like interpretations of the film. And I think from the onset, he was kind of like, no, 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 like, don't like, don't overthink this. Just like kind of accept it on its own terms, you know? And then like a lot of people were very critical about the third act of the film. Like I said, I won't spoil anything for that, but uh, I know like there's, there's, I've had some issues with the third act of it follows. I think it kind of breaks some of its own rules and like it, it kind of took me out of the film a little bit, but I think in some respects, like maybe not like a middle finger, but it's kind of like, you know, like you, you guys, like you, you, you kind of need to calm down. Like with it follows, like just like, <laughs> like don't, don't, don't spend too much time thinking about all this different stuff. And I think in that respect, like he's kind of like making this film a little more heady and a little more extreme, kind of like to throw some of the people off who were like looking for too much and it follows, like trying to get too much out of it. And I don't know. I think that's kind of a fascinating way to go about it. You know, I think it certainly is alienating and it, it does, you know, limit your audience after making a very accessible and appealing, uh, kind of, uh, uh, horror film that was able to kind of like work its way from indie to like mainstream success, you know, and this is certainly one way of going like, well, maybe I don't want that mainstream success and kind of like, you know, snatching half the audience away or turning half the people away, kind of like uh Southland tales to Donnie Darko. But um, yeah, it definitely makes me curious to see where this director is going to go next. If he's going to do something, like you said, maybe a little more low key and horror based, like he said, like he did before, or if he's going to do something, maybe like his first film that's like kind of uh, like a casual hangout type of film because this film, this third film of his does feel like kind of like a mix of both, like part hangout film, part horror film, and then also kind of its own thing at the same time. So I'm curious to see if he's going to make something even more crazy and extreme after this, or if he's going to reserve himself to something a little more closer to his roots, but it definitely makes me curious to see where he's going to go next after this. Yeah, I agree. I think he's a very talented director and writer. This is a really good script, and I think that's one thing. And it's just a, it's a very well made film. I just think it's it's just a film that's very abrasive in the way that it's going to tell its story and the story it's telling, and then the way the actors take the material. And I think that 
it, sometimes it's to the film's detriment because it almost becomes too alienating to where even the I can't sit there and fully get invested. Um, you know, not that it sacrifices the movie for the message, but I, I think it by and large does a really good job of what it's trying to do. But I just think that it's the central key that this is a movie that's supposed to be a little off-putting. And it's like, I can appreciate that. But at the same time, in terms of just a pure entertainment, you know, movie watching experience, it does make it a little bit more of a kind of a head scratcher. Because I think that most of it all makes sense. I think there are little elements of the story that really don't make sense. Like the whole thing with the owl woman, like it's just, what, what's what's that trying to say? Is it just really trying to build an aesthetic? And I think part of it is he's a horror director. I think he wanted to deal with some weird stuff. And, you know, it, it kind of ends on a, its own little, you know, note of being like, hey, this is the story we told. If you liked it, you liked it. You didn't, whatever. It's like, I don't really care myself. So, you know, and I, and I really do respect filmmaking. That's that kind of, you know, unapologetic for how it wants to tell its story and being that kind of a film, I really do admire that. But at the same time, I think at times that can create a space where it's just not quite as accessible um, as some as peers. Yeah, no, I get that. I do think um, to the point of the owl woman, I do think there's like certain elements of the film there in the film, just kind of mess with the audience. Like for instance, yeah, I agree. like when like that squirrel, like randomly dies at the beginning of the film and it, like looks at, Andrew Garfield like straight in the eyes before it like dies or like that like dream <laughs> sequence where like um that woman or that man I guess who's like dressed like uh um Elvis's granddaughter I always forget how to pr- pronounce her name Riley Kai wh- how do we pronounce her last Keo, name I think Keo and he's yeah. like he's like eating a deer it's like that doesn't really lead to anything like I think those are like kind of like intentionally like false like uh like false uh misdirections that. We're just kind of placed yeah. in the film to like kind of like intentionally kind of get you in the confused mindset of your main character. Like, you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, like a lot of the stuff doesn't really add up to a lot. It just, it's like random occurrences that just kind of coincidentally yeah. happen, which kind of leads it back to like inherent vice. Cause that was like the whole thing of that film is that like really at the end of the day, that film, you know, it, it tells itself as a mystery, but for the most part, it's just like a character drama or a character or a dramedy of some respects where it's just like a guy kind of trying to figure out his own life while thinking that he's like kind of figuring out this bigger thing about a grand conspiracy when in that film, it was mostly just like a bunch of like weird contrivances that just kind of loosely connected together in an odd sort of way. And this film, I don't know. It, it, I don't know if I can feel comfortable like placing it in like in any clean comparison. Like I think the closest I could say it is like we were saying long goodbye, which seems to be a direct compare or a direct influence on the film. But like, I think like it's not exactly big Lebowski. It's not exactly inherent vice. It's not exactly, uh, any other film we mentioned here, it's just, it, it is like, it is a lot like it's influences, but at the same time, it, it is its own weird little thing at the same time. And that does make it pretty fascinating. Yeah. And it's like, you just don't know how exactly how much you're supposed to read into it because it's like almost, you could almost see like the director listening to this podcast and being like, yeah, you guys read way too much into that. And just being exactly. Like, yeah. So we're kind of feeding into his hand yeah. here. Uh, yeah, exactly. yeah. So that's what I kind of like about this film. Yeah. It, it, I think it's like made for both audiences. I think it's yeah. accessible enough for the people who want to read enough into it, like that it, it rewards them or, you know, it, it makes you feel like you're being rewarded. But at the same time, I think like we said earlier, like I think in the general broad scheme of things, like I don't think he wants you to like look that deeply into things if you can help it. Like, I think mm-hmm. you can, I think you can appreciate what the film is trying to do in the broad sense. If you just appreciate like on its own terms, like you said, it's just like about a lonely guy who uh, just, like got he didn't accept the breakup particularly well and he's like trying to find meeting or purpose in life and he's just you know kind of going on this wild goose chase which may or may not lead to something uh substantial but it seems like in the, the grand scheme of things he's still probably going to live his life the way he was before and it's probably going to you know lead to him being what he hates which is like a, a bum on the street so you know and it, that's you know i mean maybe it's me like you said reading too much into it or maybe not i don't know it's fascinating. The film really does have that kind of stigma against the homeless, but it's the homeless person at the end of the day that kind of almost kind of keeps him from being, yeah, you know. the Fisher King guy you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's like kind of like the moral compass of the film. And uh, he is played by David Yao, who's a really good character actor. Oh, I think, um, I think I know who you're talking about. I'll have to look into him though, to know for sure. But wait, no, this is a different guy. No, he's this guy, um, actor of Nevada. He's he's well, this oh, that's the guy from this is the guy from the Jesus Lizard band. 
the Jesus Lizard Man? Uh, they're the band. I thought that was like a oh. big band or something. I don't know. Hmm. It seems like I thought this was the guy from um, Making Blair's film. Oh, uh, I don't feel home in this world anymore. Yeah, which I I'm a big fan. Yeah, of. I love that film as well. Um, this yeah. guy, yeah, it is. That's this is that's the guy from um. I don't, that's that guy from I don't feel home in this world anymore. It's the homeless oh. king. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. So if you'd like to know, hey, I noticed that guy. That's where you might have noticed him from. That makes sense. Yeah, I knew yeah. he looked familiar, but you know, I feel that way about a lot of actors. Like I, I know I'm seeing him from something yeah. or another. But, uh, you know, like Andrew Garfield, like I know like this connects to somebody or another, but I don't know how it all connects in the grand <laughs> scheme of things. Uh, but I think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up for now. I mean, are there any other know. thoughts that you have about Under Silver Lake that we didn't talk yet? I, I, the only big thing, one, I'll never look at the Nintendo, Nintendo Power or The Legend of Zelda ever the same way again. Um, I like the score a lot. I think Disaster Piece oh, yeah, that's great. has yes. done some really cool stuff. Um, he did one really recently. I really liked uh, uh, Triple Frontier. I liked the score. Oh, yeah, that was good. So he did a good job there. Um, but, you know, Michael Giolakis, I think, is like he, he's done Us this year. And it's obviously one of the best shot films um, of the year. And, like, uh, he's the guy that I'm really excited to see where he goes. He just he's like kind of building his genre resume up to be quite impressive. Um, he also did Glass, which I really liked the visual style of that film, although I'm not the world's biggest fan of it. Kind of as a general just a, a movie. Yeah, same here. He's done some really good genre. He's shot Split with Shyamalan. Um, you know, he he's a really cool genre cinematographer right now who I think is going to begin to build some more clout. Yeah, I hope he gets an Oscar nomination for us. I mean, assuming that that film, which also ended up being fairly divisive, more than I anticipated, I think. Yeah, I don't know how it's going to do with the Oscars. Yeah. I'm a little kind of wary that it's going to be as impactful as Get Out, although I think Lupita would be a good nomination for it. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I mean, it's still a fairly young year, so I don't yeah. know. But I mean, that's certainly up among my favorites of the year, so I would love to see yeah. uh, it get recognized. And, you know, obviously, that uh, what's the guy's name? Michael... Uh, Geolakis. Yeah, I would definitely love to see him get some work consideration somewhere down the road because, yeah, he's he's a fantastic cinematographer and I do think he has a very bright future, a uh, very bright future ahead of him. Uh, did he? No, wait, he didn't shoot um, Beach Bomb Two, right? That was somebody else, right? Oh, that's um, uh, Benoit Debbie. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I knew. Yeah, we were talking about this uh, earlier in an earlier episode that those those are two cinematographers who are very much I yeah. think like our our young kind of like uh Manuel Lombeski, uh um Roger Deakins kind of up and coming cinematographers who seem to be uh really proving themselves time and time again with these films they're doing. So yeah. yeah. Um yeah, I don't think I have anything else that's coming to mind as far as what I wanted to say about the film. So that's a pretty good place I think to wrap it up. Um I think so. yeah, before we got a little too uh Joe Rogan-y in our <laughs> in our broad theses about the film and life but um yeah uh cory thank you so much for joining me in this uh little mystery exposition of ours uh i hope we came out on the other side better than andrew garfield did in under the silver Lake. yeah seriously hopefully we have a little bit more meaning going on in this podcast yeah. than the movie though i wouldn't be surprised if we listened back to this and it's just like us meandering over and over in circles which you know would be fitting but it would be. It would be quite that. Yeah, but uh, yeah. we'll see. But in any case, I really appreciate you coming out and helping me figure out this film a little bit and hopefully uh, maybe dra- drawing some of our listeners to seeing this perplexing but uh, hopefully rewarding little film that we saw. Yeah, agreed. Anytime. All right, man. Uh, well, that'll about wrap it up. Thank you guys again for listening and uh, check out the main episode with John later this weekend. Uh, until then, over and out. See you, see ya.